News fatigue. Once Trump left office and we got the vaccine, news consumption fell off a cliff. And even with all the big news this year, it keeps falling. 38% of people say they try to avoid news as much as possible. Maybe that's a good thing. Scrolling through negative news is not good for anxiety, depression, panic attacks. And do you really need to read five takes on one story until you find that one that validates your opinion? Maybe just read it once and go for a walk. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Media Jungle Video Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Regeer, coming to you every week to break down the business behind the news industry, the future of media, the creator economy. Subscribe to our Substack newsletter, our YouTube channel, find us wherever you podcast. On this episode, we're joined by senior media reporter at Adweek, Mark Stenberg. We'll be talking about the state of the digital media industry, the waning demand for subscriptions, and the future of remote work and journalism. Mark, thanks hey, for joining Alex. us. <laughs> yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, so you cover these things every day. Uh, what do you, have you seen any like fallout from these falling news consumption numbers? And like, is, or are we seeing any of that in revenues or in, in marketing budgets? Yeah, absolutely. So certainly the decrease in traffic has been a trend across the industry. I actually just published a piece that was pretty related to that this morning that was looking at traffic patterns that found essentially since March 2020, when they reached this historic spike, a lot of publishers have been losing traffic. Um, so this would have been a really big deal several years ago, and it's still a source of concern for some publishers. But one of the good things that publishers have done over the last few years is really diversify the channels in which they're reaching their audience. So instead of just relying on people to visit their website, a lot of publishers have a multimedia approach where they have podcasts, they have newsletters, uh, they have events. So even if fewer people are visiting their website, they're still able to monetize that audience, sort of double and triple dip on it by being able to engage these people on different platforms. So... It is concerning, um, and I know every publisher wants that trend, you know, that arrow upward and to the right. Um, but, you know, for the most part, if people are experiencing news fatigue, there's really not much that publishers can do about that except for continue making high-quality news, be sensitive to those concerns, um, and ideally wait for audiences to reach a place where they're ready to consume news again. So it's concerning, but... Uh, it's not really for lack of uh, innovation on publishers' part. What are the big growth areas? Is it events? Is it podcasts? What are the biggest new revenue streams? Yeah, so I, I would say for my money, I would go with newsletters, which is appropriate given that you have a Substack. I just did some reporting on Morning Brew uh, earlier this week. In the first half of this year alone, they're set to take in $36 million in revenue. Uh, so that's pacing 66% above year over year totals from last year. This is a newsletter, basically exclusive product. Um, and you see the same thing with Axios, uh, and you see the same thing with some other newsletter based companies where the fact that they have these opted in audiences that they can count on their articles reaching those audiences, you know, the high deliverability and the contextual alignment that you get from running an ad in a very specific kind of newsletter. All these things have made newsletters great not just for audiences, but also for publishers and marketers. 
Um, so for my money, I would say that's kind of like the, the leading horse in the horse race. But publishers are also getting into video in a really big way with CTV. They're getting into audio. A lot of them, especially like Vox Media and the New York Times, have big stables of, of uh, podcasts. Um, so those are really helpful. And then, of course, events are returning. So a lot of publishers over the last two years figured out how to do virtual events really well. So now they're able to sort of layer that on top of their in-person events, which are finally coming back into session. So uh, a lot of different streams, a lot of advertising revenue, ticketing revenue, sponsorship revenue coming from a, a variety of sources. Yeah, a few things from what you said. One, does the, so the newsletter revenue is not being included in those numbers. So potentially people are still consuming a lot of news just from their email. Yeah, exactly. And that's like a big, like Axios specifically, or maybe it was Morning Brew, maybe both of them have said this, but the majority of their consumption occurs via email. So even if you see their traffic going down on Comscore or whatever it is, that's not really even reflective of how people consume their news in the first place. Uh, so you can see these traffic numbers going up and down, but if you're email-based, that's not really as significant of a metric. And that's sort of a also an answer to the end of the third-party cookie, where now they have a direct connection with the audience so they can charge higher ad dollars. Exactly. Yeah, you know, I mean, for somebody to be on a newsletter list, they have to give you their email. So every time they open it up, you know who's reading. If they click on something and then land on a website, you know what they're reading on the website, where they came from. And then what you see with a lot of places, Morning Brew again, for example, here, they have 10 different newsletters now. So they have HR Brew and Marketing Brew and CFO Brew. So they're also able to really segment those audiences. So they can say, hey, if this is CFO Brew, we know people reading this are in finance. And that way you can turn to a brand and say, we've got this really tight audience that makes a lot of spending decisions and we can show you how much they're reading and what they're reading. So it makes it a really easy product to sell. Relating back to my initial uh, intro, I, I, the, the newsletter is not necessarily doom that's kind of pushed in the, in the algorithm driven news consumption. So it actually might be more healthy too. No, I completely agree with that, right? So the kind of content that does really well on social media is often emotionally charged um, or hyperbolic in some form or fashion. When you're subscribed to a newsletter, the people producing that material don't have to be the loudest voice on Twitter. They know that you've opted in, that you're interested in reading it, so they can approach things with a little bit more nuance um, and be a little bit calmer, basically, in the way that they're couching their stories. Versus, again, if you're trying to get people's attention on search or social, uh, you're really one voice out of many, and you have to find a way to, to cut through the noise, and, and that can lead to some doom and gloom kind of reporting, like you said. So talk to us about those events. How, can you really charge? Because it's, it's always been such a high-priced B2B event business that you have such high margins. You can charge thousands of dollars to go because uh, the, the companies pay for it. That's kind of, isn't that hard to replicate on, on virtual? It is. In fact, that's probably the main point of departure between virtual and physical is that initially in the pandemic, some publishers were experimenting with virtual ticketing, you know, pay $299 to watch a conference. Uh, and that quickly was found to not work. And so most virtual events at this point don't really have a ticket. They just are monetized with sponsorship or advertising revenue or whatever the case is there. So it's a, it's almost an extension of the newsletter direct to high level clients for the B2B 
publishers, the business publishers? Both uh, in-person and virtual have sort of changed a little bit in response. In-person has become a little bit more targeted maybe than it used to be, whereas the real value that virtual brings to an event is that you can have, you know, 50,000 people watching. Uh, so virtual is more of a scale play, whereas in-person is now more of a, a sort of targeted play. But they're not seeing anything where people are have screen fatigue, right? People don't want to sit in front of their screens. And also you have all of these competitors like Twitter spaces and Clubhouse, if anyone watches that still. Like, I feel like a virtual event is like they're happening nonstop for free. Yeah, I agree. And I think that that has been something that they're still wrestling with, which is like, how do you stand out in a medium where there's a variety of distractions? You can go to YouTube and watch something far more engaging than, you know, two people speaking with each other at some B2B conference. So that's actually a big area where I think there's going to be some innovation. I just did another story on this for actually the Adweek magazine a week ago. And one thing that you're seeing is with these virtual events, they're being filmed or recorded already. And so a lot of publishers are starting to treat them like digital video. So in the same way, like Bloomberg might produce a reported piece and have multiple talking heads and B-roll and a script, a lot of that same sort of methodology is being applied to how do we make virtual events feel like a TV show rather than just a series of, you know, back and forth conversations. So I think the future for making them stand out and making them be a little bit more watchable is actually make them feel a little bit more like television. Hmm. Who's been doing that? Bloomberg is doing that. Um, Time magazine, now just Time, is doing that. Um, but I think that's a little bit more in the future because you have to have a pretty big production team to be able to make that happen. Whereas one of the benefits of virtual was you just need two people and a computer. But if you want that production quality to be higher, you have to have people who have experience in, in you know live broadcast. What's the state of subscriptions right now? Yeah, that's a very good question. I think that one of the biggest factors in the subscription sort of industry is the macroeconomic conditions that consumers are facing. Rising cost of living, rising inflation. A lot of people are making decisions about what subscriptions can they absolutely not live without. And that's been a little bit of a headwind for the news business. Um, I would say overall, if you scale back and like really look at how digital subscriptions have behaved over the last few years, the big trend was 2020 was a huge uptick. Obviously, with all the breaking news happening, a lot of people decided to pay for a digital subscription. In 2021, the name of the game really became retention. How do you keep those people and continue proving that your subscription is valuable when the world's not quite as falling apart as it was a year ago? Now, I think the big change is really making the process of retaining and acquiring digital subscribers a lot more sophisticated. So there's a lot more um, effort put toward dynamic paywalls, presenting people with offers at opportune moments, um, only targeting people that might, you know, stay for longer and actually be a years long subscriber versus like a flash in the pan subscriber who's just on board for two months with the discount. Um, so it's a little bit of a refinement process, but definitely some of these economic headwinds have, have publishers concerned about, you know, the, the strength of their offerings. So how do you do that? Do you, you have to, the, the types of things that you cover, that's how you retain subscribers or is it the types of, uh, the types of stories you do, the types of events, the types of perks you offer? How do you, how do you do that? 
Yeah, I mean, it's definitely all of those factors and then probably more factors. I mean, if there is like an easy way or an easy answer for how do you keep people subscribed, then everybody would be doing that. Some of the big factors that everybody points to in terms of retention are habit. If somebody is reading a newsletter from you every day, that's really huge. If they're consuming a podcast on a regular basis, basically the more often they're visiting, the higher likelihood they have of sticking around. So publishers are using a lot of strategies to try and keep people engaged and engage people who have lapsed. Uh, so habit is definitely a big one. Um, and then like the good thing is, is the biggest driver of subscriptions and the biggest retainer of subscriptions is valuable original reporting, um, scoops, deep investigations. You break news that's incredibly critical and you put it behind a paywall. That's really the best way to keep people and acquire new people. So that's a nice sort of synergy because that means that reporters are incentivized to do really good journalism because that's what keeps people on board. Um, but of course, that's that's way easier said than done. Yeah, but it's also only good journalism for business, right? You're like it's mostly what we're talking about is like business actionable business journalism or political journalism. So that means that you focus all these companies become more business focused or like deal focused. Definitely. I mean, and that's part of the problem, right? Is like if we look at digital subscriptions as this um, sort of lifeboat for the news media and say, oh, well, if advertising is falling, that's OK, because they can get people to pay via subscription. It's a lot easier to get someone to pay for a subscription to the Financial Times if that's going to help them do their job on Wall Street more effectively and make them more money, you know, or if you're a politician, you have to or be ad subscribed. Week. Yes. Or ad week if you're in the marketing industry. It's a must have little promo there. Um, but that definitely does put like the entertainment and culture publish publications, um, you know, a little bit up the creek because it's a lot harder to have a clear value proposition when you do music criticism or you write like a life and arts review or a cooking blog or whatever the case is. It's harder to say this is $20 a month and it's justified when it's a recreational kind of content. Are you seeing are you seeing any publications that are doing that in the broader general news or less business focused? Uh, are they doing it in some way? How, how are they dealing with this? Well, I think the New York Times is a really interesting example here because they had this huge uptick in digital subscribers in 2020 when the world was falling apart. But then as news fatigue has hit, they've said to themselves, the way to keep people is to bring more kinds of content offerings into our subscription package. So they bought Wordle at the beginning of the year. They bought The Athletic at the beginning of the year. They're really expanding their cooking offering and their games offering. Uh, so these are all ways of continuing to keep people subscribed that are not exclusively news-based. So I sort of like the Netflix of news. Yeah. The more that you can offer people and the more kind of different, I guess, reward centers you can offer, um, the, the more likely someone's going to stick around. So there might be a, a sort of increase in, in bundling. I wouldn't be surprised if publishers start to team up. Um, in order to make themselves a little bit more indispensable. Netflix subscriptions declined so much. This was like the kind of the bellwether for subscriptions in general for content. Uh, what does that mean for everyone else? Yeah, that was a, that was a really, it, I mean, it is a bellwether, but there's been a lot of hair splitting as to like, well, that's the streaming universe and it's a little bit of an indication for consumer behavior, but it's definitely not like a one-to-one -one in terms of you can't really look at Netflix and say, well, that is going to be what happens to the news media. But you can look at it as an indication of people 
People are getting a little bit more particular about what they subscribe to. The, the days of easy growth are behind us um, for any kind of digital subscription. So yeah, the, the bar has been raised a little bit. And I think Netflix and its, it's uh, sort of slowdown in growth was, was the indication of that, uh, you know, for anybody trying to get consumers to pay for digital subscription. And what do you think about the, you just mentioned bundling. What do you, we've, we've, we've talked about the unbundling, uh, Brian Morrissey at the re rebooting just had a, had a column about the rebundling is how is that playing out? First of all, Brian Morrissey, very good source. I think I read that same column that you're talking about. Uh, yeah, media is pendular, right? Like we swing back and forth between breaking everything apart and putting it all back together. I think with the economic outlook uh, souring a little bit, people are looking for savings um, and combining a bunch of properties into one and giving the consumer more value for that is going to be a way to stay relevant as people are pinching their pennies. So I think it's largely going to be uh, the product of, uh, you know, the economic turmoil and more places are going to say, Hey, we have to, you know, come together or die. What you're saying is the smaller type publications would join to, to have, have scale or because they have to, cause they'll run out of money. Both. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. The scale is a huge thing, especially as we're talking about deprecation of third party cookies. If you want to be working with advertisers, you have to be able to reach 100 million people. So there's certainly an incentive to come together for that reason. But I think, you know, Substack is a great example. I currently pay for a few Substacks, but if I was really trying to start cutting my budget back, I would prefer if they could combine into one and I just had to pay the same price or, you know, and it, so I think that phenomenon is going to occur on a larger scale, whether it's like local news or like you see the New York times buying the athletic last year, there was a bunch of big mergers. Um, there's still all these digital media companies, vice BDG, Fox media, uh, that are kind of constantly in conversations for acquisition mergers, et cetera. So I think that in the next six months, we might see a, a huge uptick in that. So before we move on to the next subject, so the, you know, people are expecting a recession, a lot of economists, a lot of people, especially tech companies have already started laying off, doing huge layoffs. Does this, so I'm sure the first thing companies cut in their spending is marketing. Are you seeing a lot of publishers uh, adjusting for that or preparing for that? We're certainly seeing a lot of publishers prepare for it, but the word on the street, like literally this is, you're just checking every week. So far, um, ad spend, what would you call it? Forecasts have been reduced a little bit, but they're still predicted to grow. So publishers definitely have their, their finger to the wind to try and predict if there's going to be a big decrease in, in ad spend, there probably will be a small decrease. That's pretty guaranteed. Um, but in terms of is the industry going to completely run dry, you know, the jury's still out on that. And I would say kind of like I prefaced with in the beginning of our conversation, it's really helpful that publishers have all these different avenues now. Right. So they can be serving their audience on on audio and newsletters, et cetera. So even if ad spend does pull back a little bit, they're a bit insulated from that. Yeah. And this seems to be a recession that's different from anything that I've ever seen, where it's more like a supply side recession, where it's like demand is high, unemployment is low, 
and uh, inflation is growing, which actually can be good for retailers, good for different sectors. So it's an interesting place where like it's it, we're, we're expecting a recession because of inflation, not because of uh, low demand. So it is an interesting space where there might be companies that see it as an opportunity in this growing shift to online or the growing shift to uh, e-commerce that we saw over uh, COVID. Yeah, I actually was speaking with a source the other week and they said something along the lines of, to your point, like unemployment is not a terrible problem at the moment. And this person was predicting- The problem is lack of employment. (laughs) Yeah, this, this, this source was telling me that this might not actually affect businesses in the same way. This might be more of a consumer recession rather than a recession that's really going to harm companies. So they were saying that B2B might sort of sail through this, whereas more of these consumer focused uh, publishers are going to be the ones who, you know, see a lot of headwinds. Or at least all the headwinds will be delayed down as things move through the economy. Remote work and journalism, I know you did a column about it, the, the good, the bad, the ugly. Uh, it, it has to do with a lot of things, media representation, hiring people from anywhere. Uh, t- talk to us about what you what what you're seeing there. Yeah. So like this was really prompted by these return to office conversations that are happening all across the country, especially in the media industry, where a lot of people are still working remotely. A lot of people have really enjoyed it and are wondering to what degree do we need to be in the office? I basically wrote a piece saying that for the most part, that's going to be a company by company basis. But I think across the industry, we could really benefit by making specifically internship and entry level positions remote. That way you could get people a foot in the door without asking them to move to New York or Los Angeles to work a job that's going to pay you pennies on the dollar. And this is going to allow more people to get into journalism that don't live in these metropolitan areas that maybe can't afford to live in those areas on an intern salary. So it'll get new blood, uh, fresh faces, diversity, geographic income diversity, all you know the different things that you want in journalism. Um, but then once you reach a certain level, of course, there is some reason to suggest that you might function better as a team if you're in person. So I didn't want to make any big uh, you know pronouncements about how to run your business, but I do think from the standpoint of improving the sort of strength of the personnel in the industry, making it more accessible in those entry-level positions uh, will probably help the, the industry overall. Yeah, it's sort of interesting, especially for the from the internship level, because at first you would say a remote internship sounds a little weird because usually the, an internship, half of what you learn is just by being around the more experienced people and seeing how they work, seeing how they act, seeing how they act. It's almost like professionalizing someone. Yeah, no, I completely agree, right? And so you have to set your internship or entry-level positions up such that the people who are doing this are able to benefit even though they're not in person because absolutely there's a lot of intangible reasons and things that you learn from being in an office for the first time. But I think that for all the people in the U.S. who live in you know the 45 states that aren't California, Texas, New York, Florida, and whatever um, – it's a really good way for them to try it out and see, do I like this industry? Am I good at it? And then once they have a really sort of low investment way of discovering whether they're in, you know, whether they like it or not, uh, then maybe down the road, they can make that decision and say, yeah, I'm going to move to one of these cities and I'm going to do it. 
but you don't want to ask somebody to make such a big commitment uh, you know, for very little money at an early stage in their career. What do you see as how are media companies dealing with the transition to remote work? Are most people working from home still? Are people coming back to office? Yeah, it's a divisive question still to this day. It's, I mean, it's split. Uh, I think I would imagine at this point that the majority, at least of digitally native news operations are still hybrid. Um, probably most, the majority, I would imagine, is still working from home. Uh, but you have some publishers saying- Because like it's the cheaper, right? So the companies don't want to come back to something that's more expensive, right? Well, potentially. I mean, the companies are paying for real estate. So in some instances, that's why they're asking people to come back. They're like, we're paying for this office. We want to get our money's worth out of it. Um, so it depends. I know the Washington Post has made news recently for requiring people to be in the office the, the Washington Post News Guild has responded and said, this is not really a reasonable request. We're doing just as well as we were when we were in the office. What's the point? Um, and you have other publishers like Quartz, which has made a big deal about being all remote has allowed us to hire talent from across the world and it allows us to be better journalists. So you really have different arguments. I think or it's pay a culture less thing for the journalists. Yeah, that too. I think it's a culture thing. I don't think there's a right answer. Um, but you just have to pick something and be consistent. Thanks so much for the great conversation. If you want to follow Mark, Mark Stenberg on Twitter, see you next week. Wow. You made it to the end of the podcast. Thanks so much for listening. By the way, we also are a video podcast where you can see extra memes, charts, visuals about the segments. So you can find that on YouTube or subscribe to our Substack newsletter for exclusive updates. And thank you so much for listening. See you next week.